of the time change. Yeah, it really snuck up on me every year. Weird. Twice a year. I feel like with social media, there would have been more chatter about it going into it. Like it was such a big deal when I was little. Like every TV station, every news well, there broadcast. There like three stations. That's what, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like everybody's like, don't forget to turn your clock. And like now I just, it, I just missed it completely. I'm sure local news was talking about it. Is there local news? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I gotta check that out. I was riveted. We're recording this. When is this? Wednesday? So I was riveted to the local election results late last night because I still care about that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, a friend of ours lost. Oh no. Decidedly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that he's on our side, but he's not really. Right. Did you see his posts? People were making really fucked up posts about him. I know. I know. Uh, he went down pretty hard. <laughs> one of them was cropped really poorly, though. So it just was like someone made I like saw a, that an anti-Semitic cartoon. And so I just thought he was posting a weird picture. And then I like realized what it was. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's bad. But at first I was like, Jesus, why is this is part of your campaign? Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of ugly. It yeah, for ugly. sure. Yeah. I didn't think people still did that. Like made like... Jew Goblin cartoons. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought just J.K. Rowling. More than ever nowadays. Yeah. More than ever. The other side of the uh, the horrific story that we'll talk a lot about today. All right. Well, before we get into it here, uh, thank you to all the new subscribers to the newsletter. Remember, though, that our membership tiers are updating in December. So it's the first time we are, quote unquote, gating some sort of content. So there's going to be um, there's going to be a little bit of disruption in the newsletter. The newsletter will be available starting at every every tier. Uh, but all the new membership tiers are going to be announced shortly. We're pretty excited for it. It's in the context of our fall fund friend and Hellraiser, where we're trying to raise some awareness for issues. We're trying to raise more friends, get people to share more of our stuff so we can get found, not only on the podcast apps, but YouTube as well. So just a reminder, if you can, during this period, leave us a review if you haven't on your podcast app. Make sure to like and subscribe, like any of the videos that you have that we have on YouTube, uh, but subscribe to the channel at UNFTR. And uh, if you can, send us a message of support that we'll read out on show notes. Uh, get in touch with us. Join our Facebook group uh, at Unfuckers at All. And uh, just kind of, you know, get involved and raise awareness if possible. We appreciate that. Uh, another quick update is there has been a slight delay in the shipments of coffee this month. We uh, got in touch with Amy out at the reservation, and she said that the beans for this month actually were caught up at the port. So she uh, apologized and said that she's uh, she's actually because uh, she, she finally took shipment of them. She is roasting night and day to get everything out. But, you know, there's a process and she does it right. So be patient and it'll get out to you if you've got an order that's outstanding. Um, but I expect that delay should be worked through pretty quickly. And uh, as far as what I'm doing to catch up on some things, uh, you'll notice on the YouTube channel that I uh, put up a couple of things this weekend. The first is a selection of not all, but most of the original music. We've had a couple of requests for that along the way. 
to have a place where we could have all the original music that Tom McGovern produces. So uh, we put together a video for that so you can hear all of those songs along with transcriptions so you know what the actual lyrics are. And uh, the fourth installment of the Socialism series, so I have two more to go on the videos. Those scripts are done and another script is done for something I'm hoping to get to over the next few weeks, which is to finally revisit our infamous and top-downloaded Fuck Milton Friedman episode. Because at some point, it's really time to turn back into our strength here and get after uh, a lot of the things that we're dealing with today with respect to the economy that is overwhelming all of us and get back into uh, fuck Milton Friedman mode. So, you know, listen, when that goes up, I'm going to ask everybody to support that video as much as you can so we can get that out there. Our number one video on YouTube is the introduction video that we did of uh, Friedman versus Keynes. So this is really the big expanded version of it. It's going to be a long video, but I think it's really going to incorporate all of the things that we want our new audience to know about why he is the nemesis of our show. And with that, uh, I'm not going to get into headlines specifically. Those will be in the newsletter. Just going to talk briefly about a few events that uh, have cropped up over the last few days. We'll be sharing associated headlines for these stories and more when it comes around to the newsletter. Uh, but one of the things that I want to make sure that uh, that we accomplish in the newsletter is that the headlines reflect the most updated story. Uh, for, so sometimes we're sharing different stories that are a little more evergreen. If we're going to share stories that are kind of unfolding, I like to get the the latest, most comprehensive one that relates to the headlines. But these are the things that we're thinking about this week. The first is, uh, as of last night, the House moved to censure Rashida Tlaib the only Palestinian member of Congress. And I just want to talk about something really quickly because the the reason that she was censured is because she was accused of spreading Hamas propaganda and that calls for the complete annihilation of the state of Israel. And the reason that they deigned that to be the case is because she incorporated a phrase into her, uh, into her talks that is, from the river to the sea. So... A little bit of context for this, because I know some people are curious about this and some people have written in about it. From the river to the sea is a statement that Hamas does reflect. It's also been a statement of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and it was a central tenant of the Likud party back in the 1970s when it uh, when it took over, which was to take over the state of Israel, quote, from the river to the sea. So it is a rallying cry for both Palestinians and Israelis that would like to see uh, occupation of the full territory that is known as Israel and uh, the occupied territories of Palestine to be one state belonging to either one or the other. The context that uh, Tlaib was was offering it was that we should be calling for peace from the river to the sea. I don't think that she intended to, and I don't think that there, there was any malice in her statement of invoking a phrase river to the sea to reflect the fact that she is uh, in favor of the of Hamas's ideology and would like to see Israel wiped off the map. What we're going to get into in not part two, but part three of our Palestine series is the origins of some of the movements that began to that that are really political movements, more so than uh, movements among the people. What you'll see in part two is kind of a a message of what could have been. So part two is really interesting because as we covered the so-called, quote, Jewish question in part one, 
we're going to be covering the, quote, Palestinian cause in part two. And I'm framing those very specifically because this is how they were referred to by the imperial forces. It was the the Jewish question, what are, what are what is to be done with the Jews of Europe uh, specifically? And then the Palestinian cause that grew in response to not having a nation state and essentially just being a... Um, I think what they, what most of the imperialists referred to as an administrative state. So Palestine is the administrative state. But the both of the early Zionist leaders and the Palestinian representatives, the and, and this gets really complicated, which is why we're going to do a whole series on it. But those that picked up the mantle of the so-called Palestinian cause were agitating for a one-state solution in the beginning where they would be able to absorb an influx of Jews coming from Europe into a singular state. And it was actually uh, the original Zionist plan was in alignment with the Arab national nationalist plan to create a a place where all of the so-called refugees coming out of the Ottoman empire, but also out of the, uh, the great war on the European continent could find a home to live closer to their ancestral roots and closer to what they seemed, what what they viewed as a very fraternal bond between the Arabs of Palestine and the Jews. So, really interesting in terms of what could have been, because early Zionist calls and early Arab uh, Congress calls were pretty similar in nature. But it was the imperial forces of Europe that wouldn't allow for the formation of of a greater Arab state. Later in the Zionist movement, you saw that uh, a lot of the leaders of the Zionist movement, including Ben Gurion trended toward attempting to um, basically co-op the process to create a state with a national identity. But the Arabs were forced out of the process and then they were broken up in between uh, disparate empires. And so the leadership was fractured among the states of Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria, leaving Palestine as sort of this no man's land, which is why it became uh, this administrative state up until 1948. So... Uh, As always, the people on the ground, when they invoke phrases like river to the sea, are talking about, uh, in in the purest sense of the word, creating a a haven and and a safe place for people to practice their religion, but also to live in a community that is self-determined. So my view of it is Rashida Tlaib, in calling for a ceasefire from the river to the sea, was advocating for just that, just peace in a region so that we could work out political differences. You know, then, um, you know, it's why she among, I think it was 20 some odd people through the history of Congress was um, censured for using, let's say, even in the worst case scenario that she was invoking a Hamas claim, which would be nuts. (laughs) The fact that we condemn any sort of speech on the House floor when we don't condemn, let's say, white nationalist speech on on the House floor is also, to me, kind of insane. For example, the entire Trump administration plan, which was basically written by Stephen Miller and then promoted by Steve Bannon, incorporated white nationalism language from a book uh, written in France in the 1970s called The Camp of the Saints. And a lot of that language, such as the Great Replacement Theory and You Will Not Replace Us, found its way to the House floor and can easily be co-opted and and then thrown out by people uh, in the conservative evangelical movement as an example without any sort of recrimination. 
But the minute that somebody invokes free speech for anything else, it's it's automatically called under question. So we should be careful with language. Uh, and I think that an apology from Rashida Tlaib saying that uh, that was not her intent. This is my intent is to get a ceasefire and to call for peace in the region from the river to the sea should have been sufficient without actually going through this kind of bullshit maneuver to to censure her in front of her colleagues. And shame on the Democrats that went along with it. That's all I have to say about that. And if you want to know exactly who the type of Democrats are that went along with it, it was people like Josh Gottheimer. And you know how I feel about him. So he might as well just be a Republican at this point. And with that, I'm going to take a breath. I personally don't think it was a good look to say. I just feel like she should have known better than to say that. You can not, not everyone is going to know the history you just gave. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to see people saying it's in their constitution and Hamas's constitution. And to me, it's in the Likud constitution as well. So to me, that's enough of a correlation or it's a, not even it's just it is like that is their rhetoric now. Mm-hmm. There can be positive things that are co-opted. I mean, we can just look at the history of the swastika, like just because it had an origin that was peaceful or that was, you know, that specifically or the phrase not that it was a peaceful phrase, but like a uniting phrase. It's no longer, it no longer has that. So I just, I don't know. I, I feel like she should have known better than to use that when it's modern interpretation is terrorism. So it, but the modern, that's the modern interpretation of the Zionist movement, whereas the modern interpretation of from the river to the sea of the Palestinian movement is the, is the Likud party's stance that they want to cleanse Israel from the river to the sea. So my point is that this th- that terminology belongs over there for them to to worry about and to figure out. It's not for us to unpack. The bigger issue is is free speech. Well, yeah, I'm not saying she should. She can say whatever she can say. Destroy Israel and kill all the people. I mean, she's allowed to do whatever. Like as a person, that would be hate speech. Yes, and they're saying that this is a substitute for that exact sentiment, which would be hate speech. And and I and I get it. Believe me, I get it. That's why I did episode number one in the way that I did it, is that you can't call for these kind of things specifically. So I just think that if if it was a back and forth on the House with people putting it as a matter of the record to say, I would caution you against using that because it's been historically co-opted over time and this is what it rep- represents to my people. And, and then she walked it back as she did, that that should have been enough. That to actually take the movement to censure her just sort of belies the, you know, I'm the, not, the sentiment of Congress. I'm not pro the center. I'm just saying from like, as a, a person who represents our country mm-hmm. and our people, I feel like it's just not a good look to do that. I don't I disagree. Think she should have known better than to even, even regardless of what it means to you. If it means if it has any sort of negative connotation and you're not a hateful person, why say it? Because now she's sowing seeds of mistrust with probably her with the Jewish constituency because the pro-Israel people aren't going to trust her if they even did. But I don't know. I just it left a bad taste in my mouth. Like, how did you not realize that that it, it has this meaning? And in a tweet of 280 characters, like you're not going to be able to construe all of this backstory in history. I'm not saying I dislike her. I'm not saying I think she shouldn't be kicked out over it. She should be able to people should say what they want. I don't know. It was just didn't sit right with me. Fair. Totally fair. Um, as we move forward in covering this, again, I'm going to stay away from, st- you know, being in the present news cycle. 
as much as I can until we get through the series because I like to lay out as much context as possible for any takes that we have on things. Uh, the one note that I would make that should be of concern uh, is that Israel has taken full control of Gaza for the foreseeable future. So that is now the state of policy. So when the question arose uh, and was put to uh, the uh, defense minister of Israel, what's your plan? And then both Blinken and Biden moved to go to Israel immediately and say, don't make the same mistakes that we made by, you know, doing a full occupation, et cetera, um, that they were sort of rebuffed and sent back to the United States with uh, them saying, you know, we don't necessarily have a plan, but we don't see that as a problem. Well, the plan has emerged and the plan is to take full administrative control of Gaza, which is, you know, it's sort of de facto control, considering that they essentially had full control of the phones, the internet, the water supply, sanitation, electricity, etc. So what full administrative control means for the foreseeable future, I can't really tell, except that it seems that they have um, at least moved to, in principle, annex Gaza entirely. And this will be the new battlefield that uh, the, that all Middle East conflicts will be based upon. So that's certainly something to watch out for, because that's different than you know, claiming sort of like wartime maneuvers. This is actually taking a a political and nation building stance that they are going to be in, in full control of that. So uh, in terms of bad looks, not a great look for the IDF to pose in pictures in front of the ocean in Gaza and uh, with thumbs up saying we have a new beach. So that's the kind of bullshit that everybody's dealing with right now that makes it impossible to unsee and just colors everybody's view on this and and my my big problem i think which um and again if if you get caught in the news cycle you're gonna your emotions are gonna fly from from one place to the other the historical context that i tried to provide in part one is uh should uh, should illuminate the idea that this type of administrative recrimination for october 7th where uh they actually take control of gaza and then ostensibly push as much of the population into the Sinai as possible is going to come back on the state of Israel in a very, very potentially brutal way. And it's, I don't think that in the waning days of this Biden administration first term, because I don't know what a second term looks like, it's getting harder to see how this is all going to play out under a subsequent, under a new Biden term or a Trump term. Because I, I think that the stakes are, are, are getting so high, so fast, and I, I feel like this, this surge of war fever that has taken over the Middle East and then with proxy of using weapons that are now coming in from Syria and from Lebanon and Iran and then weapons that are coming in from the United States, that we're going to be setting this whole region up for the same type of conflict that, you know, will go to the last Israeli or the last Palestinian, similar to what we're doing by just, you know, by not calling for cooler heads to prevail in Ukraine. So right back to the beginning of it's like we only have in our foreign policy, we only have one solution to everything. And that is just to continue arming people to the teeth while they work things out. And we have some sort of like diplomatic correspondences without trying to reach a detente. It's not good. Um, and so it's just we're, we're creating such dangerous conditions for Israelis and Palestinians by not insisting on a ceasefire immediately. 
because it's just not this is going to blow back on everybody. And again, I think from our perspective, we will be willing to fight it out to the last Israeli and the last Palestinian. And so will the Europeans, more so than us, because as we know, the Europeans have a history of turning their back on the the Zionist movement. And and that's why they found themselves there. I mean, that's why I go back to the and, and ended part one in the statements of Trotsky, who said that this can't end well for the Jewish people of Palestine as well, that they will forever be up against the, the rise of anti-Semitism in the world. And if they act as the Likud party as a proxy for all Jews in the world, acts in such a way that where they, they, they devastate a, an entire population, how does that not come back on the Jewish people and the Israelis? So they're sacrificing the innocence of, of Israeli civilians who have been calling for peace, and they're sacrificing an entire people, certainly in Gaza, and now we're starting to see things in flame in the West Bank because they're they're basically thumbing their nose at the world, the Likud party is, and we're so busy playing words games and trying to say who stands for what because I invoked some phrase here or there instead of looking at the reality of the fact that they're creating a graveyard in this entire region and it can't end well for anybody especially if we get other nations in the region involved anyway so in other fucking news there's a flood of bad news about debt in gen z in particular that gen z is going to be the most indebted generation by a mile which doesn't uh, pretend good things especially because interest rates are still so high So with student debt and credit cards and the fact that home prices are out of control because there is no ability to purchase anything in this marketplace right now, uh, certainly for starter homes, uh, Gen Z is finding itself in an increasingly precarious position where they have to rent everything and they have to, you know, basically pay for everything with with credit. And uh, now that credit is more expensive, that's beginning to compound. And we're starting to see those numbers really play out in in pretty, pretty terrible ways so uh, we're going to link some some pieces on that and uh, there was an election you'll hear this later in the week so there was an election on Tuesday and it looks like uh, Gen Z and the Millennials have turned out way more than younger generations of voters in the past and have had their voices heard on the local level at the state level at least against the Supreme Court decision to ban abortions so that I think is a pretty good signal for the future. But the question will be, again, I, I actually, I, I'm, I'm beginning to lean to the camp that the Democrats are going to win, all things being equal, the Democrats will will retake the House. I don't know about the Senate and haven't done that kind of math yet. Uh, but the top of the ticket, with Trump beating Biden in apparently in the new poll in five swing states, and this is going to change over the year, uh, but people thinking that Trump will have a better handle on foreign policy with a, you know, ruling with an iron fist and on the economy, which is just, listen, <laughs> facts are facts, right? We know that Biden's plan will be better for the economy in the long run. But in that, in the episode where we talked about Bidenomics and the fact that it's not, we don't believe, I don't believe that it's a, a, a bottom up, middle out strategy as much as I think it's a giveaway to corporate America, which will pay some dividends to the middle class and the upper middle class. It does leave so many people on the bottom behind. And more importantly, those voters that are so important will have other choices on the ballot 
those vo- those voters in the in the Gen Z millennial generation will have other people on the ballot are are way less tied to the two establishment parties and one can see that the the race is really going to be between who goes more for RFK Jr and who goes more for Cornell West in these areas because those swing states with tens and tens of thousands of votes taken off the off the table for the two major parties where does it all where does it all wind up so it may not even be about where Biden and Trump sit if Biden still is the fucking nominee. And I have to say, with each passing day and with each passing speech and every time you see this guy behind a microphone, if you do not understand that he is failing and he is just not capable of putting in another four years in the world's most stressful job, I, I, I don't know what else to say. I, mean, I think my job's more stressful. Is it? Yeah. In the second most stressful job in the world. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, you're aging much better, might Thank I say. You. Yeah. Then, you know, I think we're kidding ourselves. But at this late date, the fact that the Democrats did not contemplate this into their into their calculations is just uh, is stunning. Maybe they need to finally do what the, the alt-right says and, like, swap him out for, like, a double. They're always saying that it's, like, a different, an actor. Like, maybe they should just do it. Well, in the... Was it the American president? Was that the... Um, Oh, no, Dave. In the movie Dave, they had that room buried uh, below the White House there where they were keeping the real president alive. Um, So I know they have that room because Hollywood never lies about that stuff. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, let's let's go find a, a younger version of Biden. Honestly, I mean, at this point, if if nepotism is allowed in this country, which I think it is. Can Hunter just kind of step in? Yeah, he's he pulls really well. People love Hunter. They do, right? I think Champ would have a better shot <laughs> of being the president. Even didn't he bite someone? Again? Yeah. I've, yeah. That's okay. He's the president's dog. Yeah. You yeah. should be able to bite people. Mm. And uh and that's all I gotta say about that kind of stuff. And we got a lot of emails to get through and um some really good clarifying questions. So anxious to get to this stuff. And thank you, everybody, for all the feedback. So with that, why don't we get to emails? Heather H. said, hello, fellow Earthlings. Love the show. Don't you have to have a constitution to be a nation, a contract with the people? From my understanding, Israel has never ratified a constitution. Uh, Yeah, interestingly, that is true. Uh, And it has been a topic of conversation literally since 1948. And uh What's interesting about the Knesset is that it is made up, uh, it's it's parliamentary in, in formation, so it's made up of a number of different interests and aligning all of the interests into actually forming a constitution has been a challenge and will continue to be a challenge as the fracture in Israeli politics continues and only deepens. So do you need a constitution to be a nation? Technically, no, but they do have a set of guiding principles that they abide by and the courts have built legal code on top of their organizing principles that are and this is what gets so confusing about about uh Israeli politics those principles can be used or excuse me those laws can be used to adjudicate cases and legislation but they will be under review subservient to the code. So the codes will always be open to or subservient to the principles. So the code will always be subservient to the principles. But if the Supreme Court 
is the one that's deciding what is actually legal, then it's it begs the question, who has the ultimate authority? So that's why one of the reasons that the recent Supreme Court or the recent diminution of the Supreme Court in Israel was such a huge issue, because if if they're not the ultimate arbiter of code in Israel, who is? And now it has gone back to whatever the ruling coalition is. And that's why so many Israeli civilians were freaking out when uh, the party made that move. Right now, that's sort of in in hiatus and everything has technically been suspended uh, during the war. But that's that's the kind of like legal infighting that has taken that has taken place in Israel since that time. So technically, you don't need it. What you need to be a nation is recognition from the United Nations to participate in, uh, you know, in in the global community. But you also need trade alliances. So what so there's internal matters, which are codes that are determined based upon those principles. And then there are external matters that all depend upon what the trade alliances are, uh, which is why what's interesting right now is that before October 7th, Israel was getting very close to full recognition with Saudi Arabia as an example. They've already gone through that process with a couple of other nations. If you get Saudi Arabia, there's a good chance that you can open up uh, relations, normalized trade relations with some other nations as well. And what they're trying to do, obviously, is create a bulwark around uh, Iran, Lebanon, and Syria. Syria doesn't really count all that much right now. Um, but certainly a bulwark around Iran and then whatever Iraq is going to turn out to be, uh, which I think is has yet to be written. So that has been suspended, which is not great for the region as well. So now the United States, if you think about how complicated this shit gets, the United States now has two proxies in the Middle East with a shit ton of our weapons and technically our support, which is Saudi Arabia and Israel. And Biden has done everything in his power to try and keep those relations as good as they can. But this will certainly cause a fracture in those relations and uh, it's going to be really crazy to kind of watch how this all plays out just from a diplomatic standpoint. Uh, so, yeah, that's the long winded answer to no, you don't. But you can act and behave as a nation if you have recognition from the U.N. And you also have normalized trade relations and are, and are part of uh, treaties. So there you go. Now, Kristen S. says she actually has two really great questions. So why don't we split them up? I'll take the first one and then uh, 99 will read the second. The first one is, I've been grappling with my feelings and lack of understanding of what's going on with Israel and Palestine and thought maybe you could help me work through some of these feels. I've been trying to wrap my head around thinking out of it in U.S.-based scenarios. I was like, okay, the Hamas attack on the music festival, that would be like a group of rogue Native Americans attacking people at Coachella as a way to get their land back from the U.S. government. This seems senseless because they already know that the government doesn't care about everyday citizens. Then it would be like the U.S. bombing an entire reservation who like also wants their land back, but never really co-signed their homies violent attack. Does this track? Um, yes. I mean, yes, yes, it does. Just on the, it tracks on in the moment. If you're going to just say this is like this, this event is like this and this response is like that the broader context of it doesn't track 
in that our reservation territories are uh, settled lands by treaty, by recognition with a federal authority. Now, if you talk to people in native country, that they would look at this and say, yep, 100% tracks all the way. Uh, what's different about that is that we have, I forget the number now. I used to have it off the top of my head. We have hundreds of recognized reservations in the United States and throughout Canada. Here we have two vast territories that presumably live under an authority that has quasi-recognition in the United Nations, has passports to some extent, citizenship to an extent, and political representation that have military wings attached to them. So they're more developed nation states than we would consider territories, uh, reservation territories. And so I, I can't see necessarily, listen, if we bombed a reservation uh, entirely because a group of people from a reservation decided to commit a, a horrific act like October 7th on a group of people, unsuspecting civilians, I, I can't see the United States going and, and laying an entire reservation to waste over that because it's seen as U.S. territory, both by treaty and by uh, fraternal administrative relationships. That's kind of reductive to, to put it that way, but this is a war between either one nation and an occupied and two occupied territories or two nations, depending upon your uh, perspective. That event was seen in, in the ongoing context of a war that has been that has been raging since 1948. And, and that's how the two that's how they view it. So I, I don't want to be too ethnocentric and too glib and just saying, yeah, this is just like that. Because if you are in Israel or Palestine, you can sort of sense the correlation. But I'll give you one quick anecdote. When I ran this by a Jewish friend of mine, they they were confused by who was represented by the reservation in the indigenous population. So you have two peoples, two peoples that view themselves as indigenous to this area. And that's yet another layer that that kind of complicates this analogy. But if you want to look at it in pure isolation, the closest approximation that we would have would be your example, Kristen. But I think it sort of, again, it is itself reductive to take that out of the greater context of a war that's been technically raging since 1948. Is that a fair kind of roundup of that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? Um, there's no... There's so many layers. Yeah, we just don't... There's no one-to-one -one example. Like, no. So, but I think it. I think it's a good... Maybe explaining it to like a kid or something, if you had to draw a parallel. It did take me back. I think I would have had, I would have been more firm on it um, if uh, the person I was talking to wasn't like, wait a second, wait, who are the natives in this scenario? And that, that's what brings me back to remind me that this is, this is, this is different, man. This is, this is layered. This is complicated. And you have people that are claiming present day rights and roots in antiquity in a way that we cannot we simply cannot appreciate if we try to examine things through this lens. So I guess what I, what I would settle on is try not to make any comparisons between it. The events are what the events are, uh, and you make your determinations, I think, based upon some, some research. So Kristen's next question was, I started thinking about what a lot of Jewish people have told me 
about how they really have rights to the land and that Jewish people without Israel would have been wiped off the planet, which seems extreme, but who am I to say that they're wrong? So I started thinking about what would happen if I claim rights to my ancestral lands as an Italian-American and how ridiculous it would seem for me to just tell someone they can't live there anymore because my ancestors were there before them. Then I was thinking, well, that's not fair because the Jewish people didn't choose to leave. So then I started thinking about what would happen if African-Americans with ancestral ties to U.S. slavery went back to their ancestral lands in Africa and started to kick people out. It's still not right. You're, I mean, in a, in a very casual way, Kristen is just laying out what is the thing that complicates this part of the world. And I, and I think the one thing that we have to appreciate is how small this area is. So we can look at the uh, Pan-African movement under Marcus Garvey to go back and, and have uh, African-Americans resettle in Africa. And that would be a theoretically a pure return based upon bloodlines into territories that are that are unquestionably capable of reabsorbing a, a giant population. This area is not capable of absorbing millions and millions of people in the same way that other, quote, returns would be. And you're right that the analogy of Italian-Americans going back to reclaim their homeland, you know, doesn't track because they weren't expelled from their homelands. And again, I it I am I'm bleeding for the people in Gaza because there are so many children being murdered right now and listening to the people from Doctors Without Borders talk uh, because they're coming back and laying things out in really stark terms about the, the crisis of humanity that is going on right now is just is so horrific. But I started this series with the Jewish question for a reason, and that is to really unpack why this part of the world was considered a safe haven. Things went off the rails much, much later in the century, much, much later. And if you look at the documents and if you look at the way that they were speaking, if you look at what was written in the newspapers in Palestine proper at the time that that region was carved up, there, there was so much alignment between people who considered themselves of a shared Semitic ancestry. Where it went off the rails is the exact same criticism that I have in the United States of where we go off the rails every time we invoke white nationalist tendencies through policy. It is the Likud party movement that has co-opted and corrupted the Zionist movement in Israel that's my belief system. It is the radical extreme elements of people like Hamas and any of the other radical elements that are within Palestine that see themselves as an oppressed people and then respond with violence to violence. Settling things with violence will, will ultimately lead to a solution, and that is that somebody will prevail in this in this war and have and and have reign over the entire territory those are the facts of war but if we want to incorporate self-determination and humanistic policy into this then we have to take a different track right so we start thinking about the first episode we put together the reason the jews emigrated into palestine is because they were not welcome anywhere else on the planet and, and we have to be really specific about that. And this is not an ancient claim. This is in, there are people walking among you who lived through that. So my in-laws are, are, are those people, right? We have so many people that still 
have survivors of the Holocaust or people of that era and generation, they're still fucking here. This isn't old history. This is this is current modern history. The Jewish people had nowhere to fucking go. So that is totally historic and accurate to say that. If you want to have an issue, you can take issue with Zionist policy and the way that they have gone about the reclamation of certain territories. And then we can, and we are going to get into 48 with the Nakba. We're going to get into the 67 war, which was really the turning point based upon occupied territories. We're going to talk about resolutions 338 and 242, what that means in the, in the modern context. We're going to go through the Oslo Accords. We're going to go into the turn in the early 2000s. We're going to go right up until uh, Trump uh, gave over the our embassy to Jerusalem. So we're going to cover all of those things. Tactical, political, and military strategies that have led us to where we are today. But the roots of all of this is that there were two peoples who were excluded and not invited to the table. Even when they were sitting at the table, they were not invited to participate and they were discounted. All of their asks were discounted entirely in 1919 in the in the Paris Peace Conference. And those were Arab Palestinians and Jews. They were excluded from all of this. The Jews had the good fortune of having the imperial tendencies of Great Britain push for a homeland in Palestine between uh, the Peel Declaration and the Balfour Declaration because they didn't want to absorb the Jewish people. So, I mean, just remember that even though it seemed like largesse on the part of Great Britain, it's because they didn't want them. And there was no safe haven in Catholic Spain. And as we know, France was no safe haven for the Jews and they'd already been expelled from all of the places throughout Eastern Europe. There was nowhere to go. Many came to the United States. Some went to South America. Others went to all over the world. Some went to Africa. But this was the only place. It was a carve-out. It was a, I'm sorry to say it, a dumping ground for the people that they didn't want. And the people that were already there had no agency in the discussions, even though they were at the table. So, anyway, there you go. (laughs) There you go. There's like a new movement of people trying to change the definition of anti-Semitic. Have you seen this? No. Um, Because the word Semitic includes Arab, like Arab-speaking languages. But if you look at the definition of anti-Semitism, it's specifically prejudice and like hatred against Jews. Mm -hmm. So there's like a big to-do right now between people trying to change the definition of anti-Semitic. I thought maybe you'd had part of it. I haven't, but you know, I, I've been reading a lot about the, the new historians trying to uh, sort of recast the, the Zionist movement in Israel, obviously reading a lot of, uh, as we get into the second episode, a lot of Palestinian history from really well-known figures like Edward Said, all the way down to, you know, people that are, are, that never left the region that documented it through, uh, through newspapers that existed well back into, uh, the early 1900s that were talking about as the, as things were unfolding on the ground, really fascinating stuff. What's so fucked up about us is that we get so, listen to me talking because I always talk about how language is important. We get so caught up in semantics here because it is such a comfortable way to distract from policies 
And that's where right-wing movements are usually so very good at, at, at doing this kind of thing and taking the semantics of a situation and twisting it in until it pressures the opposition to like correct it and get it right. And all of a sudden you're you're in a discourse and you're in a debate about the meaning of a thing and moving further and further away from the thing. The thing that matters right now is that people need to stop dying in this region. And the only, at this point, the only legitimate external force that could bring that pressure to bear is the United States. We're the only ones. We're it. Nobody else has the willingness because I promise you the rest of the planet could not care less if the Jews and the Palestinians eliminate one another. They don't care. They don't care. Don't you think people get caught up in semantics, though, because it's all I have? I can't sure. go over there and demand a ceasefire. Sure. It, it is. And also, it is a distraction. So I think that both of those things are absolutely true. But the more we get caught up in the rhetoric of it, and rhetoric is meaningful. That's why we, listen, that's why I don't tweet or X or whatever the fuck you call it. And and not just because we are, uh, banned ourselves from X or whatever the fuck you want to call it. What did we call X Twitter? But because I was never good at it. Because, I, it, because everything takes more than however many characters they allow on X. Because just coming up with pithy statements and memes is not, I, I find unhelpful. You know, when you legislate or or drive policy around slogans, it leads to propagandizing real issues. And that can be effective as hell. And I think that there are people that are much better at it that should that do it and and God bless them for doing it. But if we want to get things right at a time of hor- of just absolute horror and devastation, we have to break from the semantics in these type of questions and just fucking get after it. The situation right now is that every minute people are dying in this region and only the United States has the, I don't, I don't even want to call it moral authority after we went into Iraq and, and literally murdered 500,000 fucking people. We have zero moral authority. But what we do have is the money to keep all of this going and we're doing it again. It's like we, we, can, we can't solve problems. We can only fund problems and ignite them further. It's just, it's, uh, it's the death of diplomacy. Where is it gone? What is our fucking policy anyway? What's our foreign policy? Pro-Israel. At this moment, in this conflict, yes. But I mean, wh- what is it? Is it a humanitarian policy? Certainly not, right? We murdered 500,000 Iraqis. The reason we, in the newsletter last week, that we called out the fact that there are 2 million people being expelled from Pakistan right now and sent right back to Afghanistan, where they will have, be stripped of their rights and their freedoms. That is a humanitarian crisis unfolding right now that no one is talking about. What's going on in South Sudan, no one is talking about it. There's there's horrors happening all over the planet. And if we don't have arms and oil in the fight, we just don't fucking care. It's just wild. Betsy asked something. She said, something that's been an ongoing question in my mind is why do the media and others, even you, refer to Gaza as an open-air prison? We're getting all the good questions today. Suggesting that the population of Gaza are in a prison supports an illusion that all the souls... I'm about to go back on something I just said, by the way. I'm just about to contradict myself. Here we go. Suggesting that the population of Gaza are in a prison supports an illusion that all the souls living in that area have done something wrong, are guilty, 
and need to pay for their crimes. Wouldn't a more accurate and more pointed description be a ghetto? Isn't that the description used in the conditions in apartheid South Africa, which is being used more and more frequently as a comparison? And this may be the out-of-line part in World War II-era Poland, yes, uh, which makes the whole thing utterly, tragically, devastatingly perverse. I'm a strong believer that Israel must be able to defend itself. Using the term ghetto may not cast Israel in the most flattering light, but as proportionality seems to have left the building, don't we need to acknowledge that all Palestinians are not bad actors? That there is a civilian population caught in the crossfire. I've also been making comparisons in my mind between Hamas and the Viet Cong and the Taliban. Small but influential political groups able to move within populations without being easily identified. Virtually impossible to eradicate even by larger, more established fighting force with lots of money and manpower to spend. Even flattening Gaza entirely won't solve that problem. So there's a lot in Betsy's statements here. So let's just walk through this really carefully. The difference between calling Gaza an open-air prison and Gaza a ghetto. I think on the facts, Betsy is absolutely 100% right that they have ghettoized Gaza. The problem with calling it a ghetto comes down to semantics, and this is where I'm about to sort of just, just undercut my entire argument before. If you call it a ghetto, it really does invoke the closest approximation that we have, which is, uh, because there are Jews involved here, the closest approximation we have, which is the ghettos in Poland and throughout uh, Russia. So, I mean, maybe that's tough medicine that needs to be said. I don't know. Um, I just think that calling it an open-air prison as a matter of propaganda has been very, very effective in shining light on the cause. So what are the facts of Gaza? And what is the distinction between a ghetto and a prison? Betsy's right in that a prison implies that people have been thrown there and imprisoned there. That is partially true because after uh, the, the resettlements, after the Nakba, many people had to go to Gaza. And then after the 67 war, there was the great separation between the two territories and families were separated and people were sent to Gaza and militants were sent to Gaza and people were apportioned off in this area. And then over time, they began to erect walls. Then they started to control the inflow and the outflow of food and supplies, water, to the point now, like we said before, where they control the grid, they control uh, sewer pipelines, basically any of the core infrastructure that would make a place work is controlled by the occupying forces of the Israelis. So is it a prison or is it a ghetto? It is a ghetto. I mean, that's really what it is. It's a ghetto in the classic sense of people being put in an area. They do not have freedom of mobility. They cannot leave. There have been many cases over the years where people have taken rafts out of Gaza in an attempt to get to other parts of the coastline and, they're, and they are shot in, in rafts and, and makeshift boats uh, by Israeli forces that sit out in the ocean. So they have them surrounded by military forces and checkpoints. You cannot get in. You cannot get out. You cannot go visit your family unless you have special dispensation and you have to and you have checkpoints all along the way to make sure you get in and you get out. So it operates and functions a lot like a prison does in that respect, uh, but it is the ghettoization of a people. The bigger semantic correlation that people have been making lately is concentration camp. Now that I've heard a lot about, and as a matter of fact, 
you'll hear Norman Finkelstein as the sort of preeminent anti-Zionist uh, Jewish voice since I think the early 1990s, referring to it as a, quote, concentration camp because a lot of the labor that's performed within it was extracted and taken out by Israelis. And that's the distinction that he makes in, in calling it a concentration camp, in that it's a prison, you can't get in, you can't get out, you are branded and identified, your movements are tracked 24-7, and they have the ability to control your food, your water, your electricity, your internet access, and all those other kind of things. So I think calling it a concentration camp, if you want to get into like a real heated verbal battle, gets even closer to, it's like open air prison, Next level is calling it a ghetto, which invokes a lot of the, the history from Eastern Europe, which is still very much alive in the memories and the minds of people in Israel, all the way up to concentration camp, which to me crosses a semantic line that I think is not helpful in having any sort of discussions about the human rights of, of both Palestinians and Israelis. But that's the semantic discussions going on now rather than ghetto to open air prison. And it's all very, very dicey, very highly charged language. So there's no resolution there necessarily, except to say that that it gets even it gets even murkier when you when you introduce other uh, allegories. Uh, the second part, a strong believer that Israel must be able to defend itself. I wholly agree with that. I disagree with the pretense that the defense has to be against most of the people that are in the West Bank and, for that matter, Gaza, excluding Hamas. I think that Israel needs to defend itself from people outside of the region more so. And to do that, they need to project uh, strength. And that's where the United States support has been so instrumental in basically providing cover and money and funding to allow for, and I, and I say the United States, but I mean, it's the United States sends billions of dollars, but it's Jewish people and programs and funds from the United States and around the world that send many billions more to help build the infrastructure of Israel which anybody that wants to claim that it's not a miracle is, I, I think, out of their minds. I think what Israel has built in this region is a miracle, and they did make the desert bloom, and it's a wonderful thing. And now all of that is is coming unraveled. That perception's coming unraveled because of the behaviors and the actions of the Likud party. So that's kind of where I land on that. But when you talk about Israel being able to defend itself, I, I don't think you can equate defending itself against youths throwing rocks. Now, there's been a lot said about the fact that Israel passed laws against anyone who throws a rock in an Israeli tank. They're allowed to open fire immediately on that person. So there's looking at, at a policy like that, which I think is what takes away and detracts from you know people's support of Israel, where people are like, well, you don't have to do that. And the desire of other nations in that region wanting Israel to disappear. Those are both real. So what's getting lost right now is the fact that what the Likud party is doing is lessening the desire for other nations other than the United States to defend Israel's right to de defend itself, not against kids throwing rocks at tanks, but against other actors in this region that would like to that have called for the destruction of Israel. Making comparisons in my mind between Hamas and the Viet Cong and the Taliban. So. Yes, that's how Hamas sees itself. It sees itself as the Viet Cong. It sees itself as the Taliban. These are morally, to us, reprehensible organizations around ideologies that we despise. 
Now, the Viet Cong, their sin was communism. So that's gotten, that hasn't aged all that well. The Taliban was, is around a strict interpretation of Islamic fundamentalism that suppresses the rights of women and LGBTQ people and, and all of the type of human rights violations that we find so troublesome. And so there's a more of a moral outrage to uh, somebody like that. With Hamas, they have many of the same proclivities, which is why they are morally reprehensible to us. When you boil it down to statecraft, you're talking about self-determination. And this is one of the ickiest, stickiest parts of this whole thing is, what is the red line for self-determination? So when the Viet Cong did it, we didn't allow it because it was we were trying to stop the spread of communism. When the Taliban did it and exercised it, we negotiated with them. We were negotiating with them right up until 9-11, until we didn't anymore. When it comes to human rights violations, we kind of have different measures of like what's important to us and when, depending upon strategically what's happening in the world. But in the, in the minds and the hearts of the people of Hamas, who have stated publicly, October 7th was our was our signal to the world that we're that we're not going anywhere and we wanted people to remember this resistance. Oh, well, they fucking remembered and it was the worst execution of it possible. And in their minds, there is no difference between a slow death and a fast death. And the reason I know that is because that is their public statements. What's the difference, they say, if we're going to die slowly or we're going to die immediately, they are willing to martyr the population they represent. That's a fucking disaster. That is a nightmare. So how do we unravel that? Kill everybody? Not really. It didn't work with the Viet Cong and it didn't work with the Taliban. So if we are to look at the rationale of Hamas, who sees themselves as liberators like the Viet Cong and like the Taliban, you don't have to like or support what they stand for to understand that radicalization of a population does not go away when you attempt to eradicate them. It amplifies it. That's why socialist movements over time have been internationalist in tendency. They have tried to incorporate the lower classes and the, and, the, and the marginalized people from all walks of life and across all national boundaries into a place where they see themselves as a whole of humanity as opposed to just a fractured element of a nation state. And why would I come back to the original sin of this region? And that is the nature of imperialism. And with that, why don't we move on to Dan H.? So Dan H. says, you might cover this in a future episode, so apologies if I'm jumping in the syllabus. How would you describe the first through fifth aliyah of Jewish migration to Palestine in terms of their displacement of indigenous Palestinians living in the region? One of the biggest criticisms today of the creation of Israel in 1948 is that it resulted in the violent displacement of Palestinians living in the territory that is now Israel. Was that same sentiment true in the late 19th and early 20th century aliyah migrations? It sounds more like Jewish people were purchasing land from imperial overlords and then settling it, which is basically playing within the system. Yes, the very capitalist, racist, imperialist system, but not one of the Jewish people's making. I was more familiar with this historical context, and I'm really excited for next week because I think I have a lot more to learn. Yeah, I think this is the part that I'm most excited to get to is in painting the Palestinian cause, I think it really teases out what what potential alignment, what alignment there was and what the potential for a single state could have been. In modern times, we are so conditioned to think about the collapse of the two-state solution. But at the time, they were looking for a single-state solution. And we're going to look at some of the correspondence between Chaim Weissman and 
uh, King Faisal, who ultimately became King Faisal, and how they were talking to one another about how incredible it will be to unite the Semitic people of this region because the Jews that were coming in over, over the past several decades prior to uh, the 1930s had been so productive and they found already trained Arab labor. They cross-pollinated ideas, agricultural ideas, which led to the explosion and the growth of all of those different crops that we described in part one. So the Zionist movement was a very productive economic movement, just in those terms, through the, I'm going to say that it was the first, second, and third Aliyot, and there's a uh, correction that a listener gave me that we'll get to and how to pronounce that. The first, second, and third Aliyot, the fourth, the character of the fourth, and the character of the fifth. The fourth was more new generation Zionism, where people were looking, had the sense that they could take over the entire territory and the Arab nations had been splintered by this time and all leadership had been uh, dissembled from the Palestinian territory, basically. Uh, so it led to this this period of time where there was no central nervous system of a Palestinian movement, even though there were Palestinian spokespeople, Palestinian newspapers, Palestinian organizations. They weren't recognized by anybody, so they had no momentum whereas the Zionist movement had funding and momentum and a central nervous system as they were building out uh, an infrastructure there. But they were very much aligned in the first, second, and third Aliyot. The fourth was of a different character. The fifth is the Shoah. The fifth is the migration from the Shoah. So that's the, the difference there, is that the character of those, uh, the Jews that emigrated to Palestine in the fifth Aliyah were of uh, re more akin to refugees than they were migrants coming to you know settle in an area and it is also true which is why this needed to be understood in part one that most of the territory through the first aliyot were purchased in large-scale deals uh with essentially absentee arab landowners so that's why this is never just a clean shot this is never by the way the 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 early jewish settlers weren't the ones coming in, knocking on a, the door of a Palestinian family and saying, I was here 2,000 years ago, you have to get out. The Palestinian cause likes to paint and portray the Jewish settlement movement as specifically that, because that is a more modern incarnation of settlements within the occupied territories. The original Jewish settlers came in and lived very peaceably among their Arab brothers and sisters and went into business together, lived in the same neighborhoods, started schools together, planted crops side by side, and, and worked in collaboration and conjunction while the imperial powers fucked around trying to figure out who was going to get what. So the character of, of migration, very, very different. And it wasn't until 1948, it wasn't until right after the war, the Truman administration taking kind of a different stance than the Roosevelt administration and, and by the way, the backdrop, which is going to be fascinating, of what was happening among the imperial powers, the imperial powers carved up this area after the Second Great War again in a way that they were like, we just can't control any of these territories. So we're going to give some independence here. We're going to leave this region there. The independence movements among the Arab states really started to take off during this time. 
while Europe was kind of licking its wounds and reeling from the Second Great War. And that's when America is ascendant. That's where the American Zionist movement was ascendant. And there was an opportunity that was seized in 48 with statehood to then clear and settle the territories. So 48 with the Nakba forward, very, very different character than everything prior. And even the refugees from the Fifth Aliyah were, were absorbed and accepted into Palestine, I think, with a recognition of gratitude on both sides of the equation. Hopefully we'll get to all of that and that'll be kind of elucidated a little bit better in the next episodes. All right. We're still digging in here. We got some really deep stuff here. Cam J, to quote Max in the first Palestinian episodes, but with the construction of the first temple and the organizing of the Torah, the Jewish people began to consolidate their faith and mythology to create a unified identity. Great episode as always, but you just glibly took the traditionalist side in the most contentious debate in Abrahamic studies and biblical archaeology. Perhaps it's on the cutting room floor. Since the 1980s, the modernist position is that, at best, the first temple, King David and King Solomon, were greatly exaggerated, tall tales, the timeline is wrong, Iron Age 1 versus Iron Age 2, and at worst, that they may not have existed at all. The Babylonian exiles returning to Canaan needed a good story by which to assert that they had a claim to the land and go about building or rebuilding their second temple. As much as I like the idea of an artifact from Solomon's temple melting fucking Nazis, the people studying this shit aren't looking for any of those artifacts. They're looking at pottery shards, pollen samples, and for corroborating accounts of as much on the tablets of surrounding contemporaneous empires. And well, except for the controversial Telden Steel, I don't even know how to pronounce that. I apologize. It's T-E-L-D-A-N-S-T-L-E. So Telden Steli. It is, it's just not looking good for traditionalist literalists. Likewise, it is likely that nobody put ink into papyrus in the case of the Torah until the second, early second temple period. And if they'd done that before, it would have probably just been to the Pentateuch, the first five books. But the only alphabet was a consonantal one, no vowels, so basically mostly still an oral tradition, as nobody would know how to pronounce that vowel-free chicken scratching without having been previously trained to recite it. This is similar within the case of the Quran. Only a Nabishian consonantal alphabet instead of a Phoenician Canaanite alphabet. This is likely why oral tradition memorizing the holy books is a very important artifact of both Judaism and Islam. In short, the unified kingdom narrative of the Torah is likely mythology. Certainly, Jerusalem, at the time, was not a grand and fortified city with kings, princes, armies, grand palaces, tradesmen. It was a small community of tribal goat herders. Please know I'm by no means an expert in the field. I'm a biologist, and I find the evolution of religions as fascinating as the evolution of life itself. I welcome any corrections to my understanding of this issue. It was not my intent to offend anyone, particularly all the Abrahamic faiths in one fell swoop. Um, yeah, I mean, people will be offended, and I wouldn't worry about it. This is core to the new historian's take in pairing up archaeological findings. What's so interesting about archaeology in Israel is that it's it's like a um, it, it's seen as like one of the highest callings and disciplines. I mean, they they fucking love it, and they've done an amazing job at trying to piece together what had happened throughout history. And most of what you're talking about is based on the findings of uh, of Israeli archaeologists. That has informed the new historian movement to go back and kind of redraft what has happened and the mythology surrounding the Zionist movement. So it was important for them to understand the origins of the Jewish people and the Jewish faith 
in the construction of the Zionist movement. So that's the context that they're looking that in. And this isn't being anti-Semitic. This is all the work of Israelis. So we're we're eavesdropping on a conversation that's happening in that part of the world among the Jewish people that live in Israel. Now, that's why I started the, the introduction by giving the disclaimer that I'm not going to go back and try to rebuild a whole narrative around who lived in what place and when. Trying to to go back into history to lay any claims, I think, is foolish, especially when you're doing it on texts that have been organized over centuries, written and rewritten to fit the times and to fit the narratives that evolved. And it's why you can find so many inconsistencies in the major religious texts that we have is because they were cobbled together to fit prevailing narratives during the times in which they were written and then they were all put into these books that we're told are the word of God and nothing could be further from the truth in my estimation they are just parables and stories that attempt to explain origin stories and that's all well and good but we can't look at the current situation through that lens lest we wind up in some sort of impossible and intractable debate over who belongs where and when if you notice in the introduction, that's why I talked about, uh, you know, uh, can't, we're not going to get involved and in, in devolve into a discussion about whether they found pig bones here or there. So this is the kind of stuff that I think is left to other people to talk about, but it has no impact on whether or not uh, civilians live or die in this modern era where hopefully we've, you know, statecraft has brought us beyond organizing around religions. But as much as these origin stories have now informed the extremist movements of the uh, Islamic republics and the, the Jewish state, we're sort of left at the mercy of these interpretations, which is why it'd be great to move away from them. But on the facts and on the ground, everything that Cam J quoted here is stuff that I have read and happen to personally believe, but does not advance my cause to inform people about why things are the way they are today, if that makes any sense. I'm trying to be as nice about religion as I possibly can. <laughs> How am I doing? Good. I I don't think this is mean about religion. It's, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it will just... definitely offend any, I mean, it would defend Christians. Ju I mean, it's, <gasps> he's right. He didn't mean to offend all of the Abrahamic faiths in one fell swoop, but it will. It just seems like That's what's nuts. more of opinion than offense. Like you can just believe something and someone cannot believe it, but it shouldn't be offensive to you, right? It shouldn't like, be. Realistically. It shouldn't be. Well, Lori H. said, do you know why the U.S. Embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem? <laughs> it seemed very sudden, or maybe I just wasn't paying attention. And is there something significant about that, about us being right there? Yeah, uh, it was moved. It was. This is an example of Trump policy by executive order. He just decided one day to move the the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, which sent shockwaves through basically every nation except for uh, Israel. That was like, cool, thanks for doing that. We hadn't asked for that, but you do you, Donald. This was part of a plan that was actually negotiated, quote, negotiated uh, by Jared Kushner. So this was Jared Kushner's invention. This was going to be his big contribution to the peace plans. When you hear him interviewed, he did an interview with uh, Lex Friedman recently that is so fucking preposterously misguided and the, the ultimate rewriting of history. It is fucking powerful to watch this little fucking weasel talk about how he 
did his best to negotiate peace in the Middle East. All he did was negotiate uh, billions of dollars for him and his wife uh, upon leaving office. But that's for another day. But yes, it was uh, it was an idea that Jared Kushner had. He whispered it to his father-in-law. His father-in-law said, sounds good. And then moved it there. And it, and in the announcement, by the way, he said, uh, Zionists will love this. They love this. They love me. It was literally like his quote. So yeah, there was zero thought behind it. And uh, all it did was basically piss off every single Islamic-based country on the planet. And uh, he just sort of shrugged and moved on. So there you go. All right, there was more, and apologies for uh, not getting to all of them, but I'm going to jump right to YouTube uh, because we're running uh, close on time here. So Rob W. 1836 said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. The U.S. passed legislation prohibiting Jewish migration during the war. Did I not learn that in school? So, yes, they actually passed. So in 1924, they passed something called the Johnson-Reed Act. And uh, this was meant to kind of slow the role of immigration of essentially Catholics, Jews, and anybody that was brown. That law did not come off the books, even through attempts to change that throughout the 1930s. And uh, they actually kind of codified it and left it in all the way through to the end of the war. So, yeah, it was um, that that was us. That was America. Send us uh, your tired, your 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 poor, your poor huddled masses, unless they are Catholic, Jewish, Islamic, or just generally brown. And that, I believe, is what is at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, if I'm not uh, mistaken, right? Sounds right. Thank you. We had Bobby McGee rewrite it. Um, do you remember that? I do. I do. Yeah, somewhere we have... Uh, where did we post that? I don't know. Bobby McGee rewrote the, um, the, the what's on the base of the Statue of Liberty for us. Uh, by the way, Rob W. also makes a re- recommendation to see a 1937 film, The Life of uh, Amelie Zola. I have not seen it, uh, but Zola played a, a really important part of the um, the Dreyfus Affair. His point, by the way, in sending that was it was an example of what Hollywood was like during the era. Because it's impossible to s- discuss the Dreyfus Affair without bringing up Judaism. And yet it is never mentioned in the film. As a matter of fact, Jack Warner ordered that the word Jew be removed from the film altogether. Just another example of Hollywood's collaboration with the Nazis. Can you imagine telling the Dreyfus Affair on film and not mentioning that the guy was Jewish? One time I did a Wikipedia <laughs> deep dive on Julie Dreyfus and she's related to the Dreyfus Affair. No. Like distantly, but yeah. Holy to cow. Al- Alfred, is that his name? Now that is more true than my deep, my very shallow your dive fake, yeah, your on Gene Wilder's claim. grandson. Right? Yes, who is not his grandson, but got it. I mean, I, I, I bet she figured it out. One of those like find your ancestors shows that celebrities get to do. It's like I know, and they I want to cry. It. Oh my god! Because I want to give them my my DNA, but I don't want it to be in a database. Exactly. I just want to have Hollywood have it. Exactly. Or well, PBS, they'll they'll be they'll destroy it for me. You you would come back as ninety nine point nine percent ninety nine. Oh, I thought you were going to say Ashkenazi Jew. I was like, yes. and Ashkenazi Jew. That's yes. that's why it's honestly besides the government part having my DNA, it's not going to tell me anything. It's just going to say Ashkenazi. Yeah, it's like that's not even fun. I'm gonna. I would have everything. Oh well, yeah, literally everything. I think you should do it. I should, but I don't want to be in really a database funny. either. No, it's fine for your to be a database. By the way, uh, Rob was the one who corrected me on the pronunciation of Aliot. So a single movement is Aliyah. And as I was uh, pronouncing it as Aliyot, 
uh, when multiple aliyahs is alio, and it's actually aliyah, aliyot, aliyot. It's, it's, I'm not even pronouncing aliyot correctly, by the way. Um, but because I think it's aliyot, aliyot. Anyway, <laughs> not so great at that. Uh, my Yiddish needs some work. Now, Rapapapi said, I appreciate this beyond words, but. Within the brilliance are moments that detract from the generosity of your sharing. For example, you throw in a statement that asshole Columbus without any explanation of why he was an asshole. Don't we all know? I thought everybody knew. By the way, I took it out of the video version. This is a comment on YouTube, but they obviously were listening to the podcast and then commented on YouTube. Because I did take it out of YouTube because I, I, I don't want anything to take away from uh, yeah, get get the strikes from YouTube. I just, I, I'm, this is, I'm, I feel shocked. I know. I think we all know. I, I thought we all knew. And if if we don't all know, that's We hate him bad. because he was Italian. Yep. Yep. If you don't all know, I guess we do have to clarify that. It's because he was just a, a, a genocidal maniac who went and like decimated entire populations of islands. Yeah. He said, guess what? I'm here. And then he was like, oh, oops. <laughs> just kidding. I don't know if he even said oops. Um so anyway, you should have a great voice in all ways. It's valuable, and my enthusiasm tells me everyone should listen to this and to learn. But don't shoot yourself in the foot. Point taken. Again, as we've said are from the beginning, though. Are they mad about though, Columbus? Or are you cursing? The Columbus thing. Okay. Yeah, it is unfucking the Republicans. Sometimes we do things uh, that are a little tongue in cheek because uh, we're us, and um, so hard, it's hard to take the us out of us. Um, we we do we do as we do, but I did take it out of the YouTube version just so you know. Uh, anyway. Go for it, 99. Austin4768 said, Great work. I'm extremely skeptical, however, of your claims along the lines of Jews are different from every other ethnic or cultural identity on the planet. There are certainly other groups that have long histories of persecution and a large global diaspora. I have the Romani people in particular in mind, but it would surprise me if there weren't others that fit the description. The feature of being both a religion and an ethnicity is unique, but I don't see what this has to do with your professed, quote, inability to criticize someone for believing in Zionism. Sounds as if you believe that the Jewish experience is somehow so incomparable to any other that you are compelled to withhold criticism that you might have for other nationalisms. Otherwise, why wouldn't you just say, I can't criticize anyone for believing in a homeland for their people? Anyway, I expect you'll clarify and elaborate. Maybe you'll, you'll convince me of your perspective. Uh, Romani is interesting. And the Romani are specific to a certain territory of Europe. And then you have that I believe extend more into from Eastern Europe into the Balkans. Please feel free to correct me uh, for any experts out there. They were one of the principal targets of the Nazis. And so they're, they're very much a shared uh, experience with, in respect to that. People referred to as the Bedouin people uh, throughout the Arabic territories, um, very similar in nature in that these were you know, people who did not set roots. They, they wandered around certain territories in that respect, you could consider many native tribes uh, sort of the same in that they didn't set specific roots with borders and identities and land ownership was an artificial construct that they had never conceived of. And so that's what made them susceptible to colonization and imperial exploits here as well. So there are similarities in the experiences. The reason I say that the, the Jewish experience is singular throughout history is that we actually can go back into history and look at Start in the Roman Empire, the thing that apparently all men think about three to four times a week. Mm -hmm. In the Roman Empire, one of the reasons that the Jews were persecuted, or the primary reason that the Jews were persecuted, is that they did not give up their religion. When the uh, Roman Empire 
said, you cannot practice any other religion. So they said, nope, sorry, uh, we won't do that. And they stood up. So on religious lines and then throughout history, alternately on cultural lines sometimes, and then on ethnic lines, the Jews have been discriminated against in a way that there is a through line through history that is almost startling. And that's why I call it singular. So it is not that you can't look at, let's say, the French in Algeria, the Boer War, Khmer Rouge, uh, the ethnic cleansing in, in Russia, Rwandan genocide, South African both ethnic cleansing and uh, genocidal tendencies. It's not that you can't, uh, the Armenian genocide, it's not that you can't look at specific cases, horrific cases throughout history where the experience that the Jews had during the Holocaust in particular uh, is not eerily similar. It's that these, uh, the anti-Semitic tropes have been around since recorded history began way before the anybody would identify as, quote, Armenian or uh, way, way before that there were uh, issues in Indonesia. Like, the Jewish people as diaspora have a singular connotation throughout history where there is a through line of persecution that ebbs and flows, but it's always right there. It's part of the Jewish consciousness. So when we talk about the Palestinian identity, and this is why this is all coming up, when we talk about what's in the minds of the Palestinian people who see themselves as a people who have the the desire to uh, to be uh, for self determination, the view of themselves as part of a rich tradition and a history of Arabic people that lived and settled in these lands and farmed these lands and lived there for generations and generations, the Jewish people have that same mindset and view of themselves, but in diaspora, from time immemorial never being, despite the desire to, allowed to settle in an area and live peacefully. It's never happened in history, and that's why I say it's singular. So you can mirror certain events of the Jewish experience with other events that are just absolutely devastating. But no one, in my estimation or reading, has the singular experience of that through line throughout all of recorded history. If there is any Buddy out there who has another take on that, I'm totally open to listening to that. This is something that I declared through reading and through research and just on my own that I'm sure exists in scholarly outlets, like in tons of other places. It's just a sentiment that I derived, you know, pretty organically by by doing the reading, but also by being a scholar of the Holocaust. That is one thing that I can say that I have some scholarship on that I can attest to. With that, why don't we get to some donations and uh, oh, and we have a review. Let's start with the review. What did somebody say about us? Miss Mesman said, listeners are provided with historical context, current data, and a nuanced view of current political concerns delivered with humor. Love this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Miss Mesman. And I want to thank all the people that supported us since we last got together. Lawyer Cynthia bought us five coffees. Lynn Kay became a member. Sherwood Double Zero is now a member. Mark P. became a member, and this is a cool one. Lindsay gifted husband Alec a membership, saying, quote, my husband Alec loves your show. Thank you for all the hard work you put into creating it. Thank you for seeing that, Lindsay, and for acknowledging that. And uh, congratulations, Alec, on that very thoughtful gift from Lindsay. That is a very cool thing. Remember that our memberships are the lifeblood of this 
podcast, the videos, the newsletter, and everything that we do. So if you listen to us, if you read us, if you watch us, however you take in this information, and if you uh, collaborate with us and by giving us these unbelievable questions, let me just say thank you to everybody that gave such thoughtful questions. There was nobody here with hate in their hearts that asked a single question. Uh, we didn't exclude anything that would have been anti-Semitic or anti-Palestinian or or Islamophobic. We don't get that kind of response from our audience because I think everybody understands what we're trying to do here. So thank you to all of the unfuckers and please support us as we try to grow this thing. I think that's all I got. I'm spent. 99, anything you want to leave the crew with here? Um, it's about to, about to get dark out there physically. So just get your happy lights out. Mm-hmm. Keep your mental health okay. Yep. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard time right now, but take care of yourselves and uh, stick with us. We'll take care of you. I like it. See you next time, motherfuckers. <laughs>